Welcome back to Christian Life Academy. We are studying through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. I shouldn't say that. I should say we're preparing to study the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession because this is uh, indeed part four of the introduction. And uh, we'll definitely finish the introduction today and move into the confession itself, uh, beginning with the preface, uh, which is important, published over the confession. It should be in all your copies, if any copy you have, uh, because it gives some relevant information about the confession, but we'll read through that. Um, as well. However, we were working through the introduction, which uh, included us talking about uh, what a creed and a confession is, why it's important, and uh, then some historic uh, information about uh, different creeds and um, where they all came into place and why uh, creeds, most of, the, most of the creeds we see after um, the publishing of the New Testament, the major ones that were ecumenical creeds accepted by uh, all three branches of the church were all in uh, reference to or response to a particular heresy. And uh, in fact, um, most of them really was Arianism. Uh, that is really where the three um, ecumenical creeds were, uh, why they came to be. Um, then we have since moved into confessions. We talked a little bit about uh, some of the other uh, major confessions, uh, probably, not probably, undoubtedly, um, Without argument, the most consequential is the Westminster uh, Confession, which was published by the Presbyterians in England. The Westminster um, was used as the basis for the Savoy Declaration, which followed a few years later, published by the Congregationalists. And then uh, after that, we have the um, Baptist Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, based on the Savoy. Uh, so, we d- talked about that a little bit, about the history of it a little bit, and then we got to this section where we left off, which is a response to the objections to creeds and confessions. So, that's where we'll, this is actually the last part left of the introduction. So, uh, let's at least look at some response that we can have to and what the major objections are to creeds and confessions. All right. So, there are two primary objections. This is really the two primary ones. There's some secondary and third tertiary ones, but uh, they're not really as big as these two. Here they are. Number one, the objection to creeds and confessions is that they undermine or set aside the supreme source of divine authority. In other words, the scriptures. The scriptures are our sole authority. That's objection number one. Objection number two is that they are an assumption of authority by the church, which is not within the church's jurisdiction, and an unlawful restriction on Christian liberty. Okay, that's the two objections. In other words, the first objection is is that they then become the supreme authority instead of the scriptures. They supplant the scriptures. And then the second, uh, second objection is it's not related to the first. That may be confusing. The second objection is not related to the first. second is a separate objection. And that objection is, is that the church is taking authority to itself to come up with these creeds and confessions. It doesn't have that. And by coming up with these creeds and confessions, it is infringing on people's Christian liberty. Okay, that almost sounds like ridiculous just to read it, but <laughs> some people definitely hold this, so let's not you know, discount it that quickly. Now, let, let's make, just make, keep in mind, if any of these objections were true, if either one was true, then creeds and confessions would be wrong. Are you, are you with me? They would be a violation of 1 Corinthians 7, 22-23. We would be a slave to men through a confession or creed. And obviously, two references there, 1 Corinthians 7, 22-23, and 1 Peter 5, 3. 
The bottom line is, is that we're not to be slave to men. We're not to be following the commandments of men. We're to be following the commandments of God, right? So if these things did supplant the scripture, then creeds and confessions would be bad. Are you, are you with me on this? Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. All right, so let's give some responses. Well, number one, creeds and confessions do not infringe on the authority of scripture. They do not undermine or set aside the scripture. That's our first objection, our response to the objection. They do not infringe on the authority of scripture. They do not undermine or set aside the scriptures. Well, first of all, we recognize that certainly the scriptures teach the sole sufficiency of scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. The scriptures teach that. They are sufficient. When we get into chapter 1, which is probably today, we get into chapter 1 and we start talking about of the scriptures, the very first line of the confession is that the scriptures are sufficient. That's the very first line. So, we believe that. Our confession teaches that. Now, it doesn't say the scriptures are sufficient for all of these things, but you also need the confession. There's no but in that statement in the confession. Creeds and confessions distill scriptures. They distill scriptures. They do not replace them. In other words, they're a summary and statement of key beliefs taught by the Bible. The fact that they're a summary of scripture alone indicates that they do not supplant the sufficiency of scripture. The confessions themselves state that they do not undermine the sufficiency of scripture. So the Savoy, the Westminster, the Baptist, all of them state that they do not undermine the sufficiency of scripture. They all state that the scripture is the supreme authority. The concept is, is that they're a summary or a statement of these doctrines, right? This is why, of course, we have all these scripture references when we go through different points in the confession. The scripture references are referring to those doctrines. That's where they come from. These are a summary of all those things together. Does 2 Timothy 4 prohibit putting scripture into your own words? Does it prohibit them being out of order? Does it prohibit them, does it prohibit us from picking or choosing what we teach? Let me read this to you. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at, the, at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all suffering, long-suffering, and doctrine. So does that, because it says preach the word, is the only thing that can be preached the word? Now, are you with me on this? In other words, do we use other words to describe the word? We do. So in other words, if we do use our own words, and that violates the sufficiency of Scripture, then isn't praying, teaching, or preaching doing the same thing? In other words, if we say, well, if we add something to the words of the Scripture then we're violating the principle of the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay, so if that's true, then all these things would be wrong. Why? Because you add to the Scripture. Shouldn't you, preach the Lord's, shouldn't you pray the Lord's Prayer? Shouldn't that be it? How do we pray? He says, this is how you pray. Is that the only way we should pray? Nothing else? Don't ever, don't ever vary from it? Hmm. You don't believe that, Right? We don't believe that we're violating Christ's teaching by praying things in the way that we feel compelled to pray them. 
We don't believe that we're violating the sufficiency of Scripture by instead of just getting up and reading the Scripture as the message, that we actually explain it. Now, of course, we don't believe that because that's not the way that all of the apostles did it, did they? You don't see them getting up and just quoting the Old Testament. They quote the Old Testament, right? But think, you know, one of the greatest messages there is, Stephen. What did he do? He gave a summary of the Old Testament, ending with, he is the Messiah and you killed him. They weren't so happy after that. But he basically distilled the Old Testament into this brief message, didn't he? One of the cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. So we believe the Bible alone is the source of God's word. We don't believe that when we preach that we are giving God's word, unless we're quoting the scripture. But what I'm saying to you right now is not scripture, right? It's not, I, I, I'd love to say I'm inspired, but I'm not. Let's say it's enlightened. We could say moved by the Holy Spirit even. That's possible. But you can't say that this is God's word. Creeds and confessions are not inspired. They're not equal with Scripture. No true church states or infers that they are inspired. Did I mention a church that actually did state that they are inspired? Yes. And their name rhymes with Roman Catholic Church. I'm just saying, that church <laughs> does say that the Apostles' Creed is inspired. They believe it's inspired. So they do give that divine authority over their creeds and confessions, which violates the principle of scriptural authority. That's not what we do. That's not what most churches do. That is what the Roman Catholic Church does. That's not what most churches do. For doctrinal questions, we should not go to our creeds and confessions first, but know their tenets and go to the scriptures based on our understanding. They may serve as quick references, but their authority and source is the scripture. So, if you say, you know, why, what is the significance of communion? The Lord's Supper? What's the significance? Well, you could go to your 1689. And see what it says, and look to those scriptures, and then go to those scriptures, right? But you don't believe it because the confession says it. You should believe it because the scriptures say it. The scripture is the authority. You could find a summary or an explanation in the confession, but that's as far as it goes. It does not supplant the scriptures. It does not have any authority. It's not God's word. It does not have the same authority as scripture, period. It's not. So it's a good, quick reference. No question. Not the same as scripture. Many churches have in their constitution a declaration of accepting a particular confession, but they usually specify that the confession is not equal to or higher in authority than Scripture. That's what ours does. We state that that's our statement of faith, but we say it is not equal to Scripture. Number two, response. Creeds and confessions are not an assumption of authority by the church. All right, so here is where this issue comes down to. This is where they come down to. What does sole authority mean in this objection? So in other words, we talked about the, the fact that they say the Scripture is the sole authority, so the church can't take this authority. Scripture is the sole authority. Okay, so what does that mean? It cannot mean there's no other authority. So by saying it's the sole authority, or in other words, the only authority, that can't be true. You can't say that the Scriptures are the sole authority to everything. Why? Well, it is true that the scriptures are our only divine authority. 
They're our only divine authority. But they're not the authority we have, the only authority we have. That's why you can't say that it's the only authority. Why? Because the scripture establishes other authorities. It's in itself, it says that there are these other jurisdictions. God has granted legitimate human authority under his divine authority. Each sphere or authority has its own jurisdiction. So what are those spheres? Here they are. They're the individual. They're the family. They're civil government and they're ecclesiastical government. That's the spheres of authority God has established. And he tells us in his word what they are to do. Individual, there's a whole lot you're to do or not to do based on his word, right? Pray without ceasing. Is that a command for you as an individual? Yes. Is that a command for the civil government? No. Are you with me? It's for the individual. That's where that's, where that's aimed. So he set up these with their own jurisdictions. It is authority that exists beside the scripture. The scriptures are the sole authority for everything divine. They are not the sole authority for everything in life. Creeds and confessions are the expression of the authority God has given to the church, specifically to teach the word of God. In other words, the Great Commission says for us to teach, Matthew 28, 19. The church uses the confessions to teach, to teach. They are actually the properly exercised authority to create a method in which to teach the doctrines of faith. Could we use just the scripture? Could we? We could. So, are you to read the scriptures individually? You are. And if you read the scriptures individually, do you understand every aspect of it, particularly when you're a new believer? I'll be, I'm going to be honest and tell you that you, this is still a problem when you're an old believer. When you're a seasoned believer, this is still a problem. The scriptures by themselves sometimes are a little unclear. And you don't always know where the other passages are that refer to the same subject material that's in the passage that you're reading. right? So sometimes what do we do? We would look at a commentary. We could do that, right? Or we might listen to a message about it, right? We could even read a book about the subject. All of those things are adding to the scripture, are they not? They are, but they're not intended nor stated, if they're good sources, to be equal with or replacements of Scripture. They are just teaching of the truths of the Scripture. So when Brands gets up to preach this morning in 2 Timothy, he will be explaining the passage that he's reading. He will refer to other passages of Scripture, I'm sure, unless it's the first time, but normally he does refer to other passages of Scripture. And when he covers those other passages of Scripture, he is showing that what his explanation is is true. You understand? We do not believe, nor would anyone who is using common sense believe, that he is suggesting that all the words he uses in his message are equal with the Scripture itself. They're just an explanation. The fact that he does it is within the authority of the church. Now, is it just within the authority of the church? Ah, this gets a little tricky. Is it just within the authority of the church? No. For you to adopt a confession by yourself is a problem. That is a problem. Now you're a lone ranger. But for you to be part of a church that's adopted it, proper. Why? The church adopts it to explain their beliefs, right? 
But what if you are wanting to explain your belief to somebody else? Right? Your neighbor, your friend, an acquaintance, whatever, somebody you meet. You want to explain, what do you believe about this? Right? You would not normally just quote scripture. You would explain what you mean. You would explain that, right? Within your individual authority. Are you not commanded to witness? You are. Does that mean the only witnessing you can do, does anybody believe, don't, don't embarrass yourself, if you, does anyone here actually believe that the command for you to share the gospel means you can only quote the scripture? We don't, we don't think that. We know that that doesn't make any sense. Right? Quote the scripture to a non-believer. They don't usually understand very much about what you're saying. Look, the most educated Pharisee in Israel did not understand you must be born again. Did he? Christ had to explain it to him. Can I enter into my mother's womb again? No, you have to be born of water and of the Spirit, you see? So he used language that then had to be explained to Nicodemus. Christ. You th we, sometimes we think, you know, everything Christ says, everybody should have just got it. That's it. He explains a lot of times. Think about how many times he had to explain things to the apostles. Think about how the apostles sat there on Mount of Olives looking for him to come back down. God had to send an angel to say, why are you sitting here? Go. Right? Using additional words to explain the scripture only is completely common sense. What, where it's used and how you use it is within your jurisdiction. How do you explain it to your children? If you're going to teach your children the scripture, you certainly can do that and should do that through memorization, right? Like, for instance, the Ten Commandments. You'd want them to memorize the Ten Commandments. But then when you explain the Ten Commandments, you might have to use some other words to explain what those mean, right? Okay, third response. Creeds and confessions are not an unlawful restriction on Christian liberty. Now, as you can imagine, this, this uh, objection to creeds and confessions being an unlawful, or in other words, outside of a jurisdiction, of a restriction on Christian liberty comes normally from antinomians. Right? So antinomians are those who believe in no law. They don't believe the law applies to Christians. So they would be the ones that would normally say this, because the creeds and confessions do reinforce God's law, his moral law. So they would say, well, no, no, you can't. <laughs> not so fast. You're trying to restrict my Christian liberty. Okay. Well, first of all, adherence to creeds and confessions is voluntary. Right? So whether you say, I believe that this is correct, whether you state the creed, all those things, Voluntary. There is no authoritative power given to them. None. Joining a church that subscribes to them is voluntary. You can choose not to join. You can choose to go to a different church. You're not forced to do this. It is not restricting your liberty by forcing you to join when you don't agree with the creed or the confession. This also makes the idea that they're an infringement on liberty invalid. If they were enforced by law then that would be a violation of the authority of Scripture, wouldn't it? 
Now, this is the problem that the Puritans finally came to a realization when they got to New England, thanks to the pilgrims. What? The, the state cannot enforce the law of God on men. What? It's not their jurisdiction. The state is given the power to what? Punish evildoers. They should be a blessing to those who do good. Doesn't feel like so much today here, does it? But this is what God established them. This is what he says in his word in Romans. That's what the civil government is for. Is the civil government to bring men to Christ? It's not their job. That is outside of the jurisdiction of the civil government. Should the government, civil government, if it is actually governing how it should, be governing under God's principles? Absolutely. The best government you could have would govern using God's principles. But their role is not to persuade sinners to salvation. It is not to teach believers and people how to live. Look, when the government starts telling you how to live, it's communism. It's tyrannical. And we're, I don't know what the percentage is, but we're somewhere down the path, right, where the government can't trust, you cannot be trusted with many, you can't make a decision about whether you should wear a seatbelt. We've got to force you to, right? Isn't that, isn't that a law? Because yeah, we can't trust you, right? And that, that's, I mean, that's a simple one, but there's so many. That's not the government's jurisdiction to make sure that you are safe, from your own, does it, how long, how far does that go until there's no kitchens in the, no knives in the kitchen? Creeds and confessions are not enforced by law. They do not take liberty away from the individual believer. The creeds and confessions themselves teach liberty. Is it possible that the confessions could te teach Christian liberty while their very existence eliminates Christian liberty? I mean, we actually have a chapter on Christian liberty. So how can the creed, the confession, teach on Christian liberty when its very existence denies Christian liberty? It can't. It doesn't make any sense. All right. A response number four. Rejecting all confessions is self-refuting. So just saying that you reject all confessions is self-refuting. Now, some reject creeds. This is called anti-creedalism. We mentioned this before. Because creeds are just statements of one's beliefs, even saying you do not have a creed proves you actually have a creed. I don't have any creed. That's your creed. Right? It's a statement of beliefs. So you can say, well, I don't believe any creed except the scriptures. Or my confession is the scriptures. Or my creed's Jesus. Okay, great. That's your creed. But which Jesus? Which scriptures? What do they mean? Look, we believe in the scriptures. That's our confession. So are the Presbyterians. They don't think baptizing of adults after salvation is the right way to do it. It's to be children. Baptized as infants into believing families. We both believe the scriptures. So which way do you believe? If you just say, oh, I believe the scriptures. Okay. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses used to use the exact same, they used, in fact, they were very much KJV adherents until about 25 years ago. Then they had so many objections from people that pointed out that their positions on issues like Christ were wrong in the scriptures, they came out with their own version. The Mormons, 
use our scripture. Now, they believe they have another book, right? The further revelations of Jesus Christ, and it's, a, it's an entire book, the Book of Mormon, which has essentially more scriptures, and guess which one they refer to? That one, really? All the time, yeah. But you understand, somebody just says, well, my confession is the scriptures. That's not enough. You have to explain it. And as soon as you explain it, that's your confession. If some say no creed but Jesus, which Jesus doesn't mean, certainly not the Jesus of the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Muslims, not the same Jesus we know. The, the Muslims believe in Jesus. You know this, right? They believe in Jesus. It's not the same Jesus. It's not the same Jesus. Their Jesus is very different. Now, if you say to a Muslim, well, do you believe that there was this Jesus who existed right around 0 A.D.? And he lived, and he died, and they would say, yes, oh yes, absolutely. He is a servant of Allah. Really? Yeah. Did he raise, rise from the dead? Not yet. He's gonna. He's gonna come back. Really? Is he the Messiah? Oh no, he's not the Messiah. There's another Messiah. Why is Jesus going to come back? Well, he's going to come back to tell the Christians they were wrong. And then he's going to kill the Antichrist before he's killed a second time. That's what the I'm really summarizing here. But that's what the Muslims believe. Is that the same Jesus as you believe? No, they don't believe he's God, by the way. They don't believe that he is God equal with God, just like we read through all these creeds, right? They believe that he is the Son of God, as was Muhammad. Just somebody who has divinity in them, not divine. So, to say, no creed but Jesus, it's not enough. It's not enough. How about the Mormons? Who's Jesus? He's not God. He's the son of God, just like Lucifer. In fact, they're brothers. Not uncommon to see them depicted together in paintings. Lucifer and Jesus. Is that the Jesus that you think is Jesus? No. No, not at all. And we could keep going through every heretical religion. Creeds and confessions explain which Jesus and what he did. In fact, when someone explains which Jesus they mean, they just told you their creed. So for someone to say, no creed but Jesus, no confession but the scriptures, that's not entirely true. They can say that, and they can mean that, but the reality is it does not explain it enough. So using a creed or a confession does explain. Remember, we just talked about this last week. Arius based his arguments for Christ not being equal with God, not being God, with the scriptures. The Apostles' Creed, not a response to that, not directly a response to that, but certainly the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, a response to that. Why? To explain, to distill. Here is what we understand that the Scriptures say on this subject. Right? Why? Because men who believed differently and both said the Scriptures support their positions disagreed. So 
they had to come up with some statement as to what the church believed. It is not enough to say no creed but the Bible because of the wide variety of interpretations. It's the very reason we have different denominations. Sometimes those interpretations can lead to heresy, and that was the very reason creeds were created in the first place. So we kind of covered that already. And when I say it's the very reason we have different denominations is, for example, the Presbyterians and Baptists, right? Presbyterians and Baptists. Both believe the Bible. Some great, learned scholars, Presbyterians. But we disagree. Their interpretation of some passages different than our interpretation of some passages. Are they still believers? They can be. Can we still be believers? Yes, we can, right? Another form of anti-credalism is for a church to state that they have no dogmas. I don't know if you've heard that before. Sometimes you'll hear that. A church might say, we have no dogmas, which is the same as a creed. A dogma is the same as a creed. Essentially, it's a statement of what you believe. Well, guess what? That's their dogma. If someone says, we have no dogmas, that's their dogma. You understand, right? If you make an absolute statement about something, that is your dogma about that. Right? If you say, these poles are absolutely brown, your dogma on the pole color is brown. Right? Now, we might all agree with that, except Paul, he's kind of particular. And Paul would say, mm, they're mostly brown. Because I can see some paint chips over here, and that's not brown. Right? And is he right? He is. He is right. But you see, he could say, I believe the poles are mostly brown. That's his dogma. We're using dogma in a very light sense here. But you understand, there could be variations. And just to say that you believe something is a dogma. So for someone to say, we believe in no dogmas, that's your dogma. It's self-refuting. Many reject the idea that creeds and confessions... They reject the idea of creeds and confessions because they want no authority to submit to and are looking for an excuse to hold that position. This is generally why someone says this or why a church will say this. This clearly violates the, supreme, the spheres of authority that God has ordained and established. If you can be independent as a Christian, why did Christ give the keys to heaven to the church? Significant. We do not, <laughs> you don't even hear too many messages on the keys given to the church. And what's bound on earth is bound in heaven. Because frankly, the implications of it are so scary that pastors don't want to touch it. That's not right. The scriptures teach this. There is no ambiguity about it. What the church binds on earth is bound in heaven. Is this serious? This is serious. So this is often something that's not talked about, but the implications are significant. Basically, if the church binds something on earth, and one of the ways the church can do that is by marking someone, they're marked in heaven. They're marked in heaven. They say, well, we're not shackling God. No, we're not shackling God. But why would Christ say the keys are given to the church if there's to no effect? They are to an effect. Along with these, we need to recognize there are two extremes that we want to avoid. Two extremes that we want to avoid. One is personalizing our beliefs. Now that, you might think, uh, I don't understand. Well, I'm glad you 
give me that face because then I can explain to you. There is a real danger in making our beliefs entirely personal, experiential, or subjective. You understand? In other words, not basing your beliefs on the scripture, but making them about what you've experienced. Now, this is the ultimate heresy. This is the ultimate heresy. Because it makes our beliefs based on man's standard, not God's standards. That's why it's so serious. And of course, those who do this don't ever think through the applications of that. You know where you hear this the most often? I hope you don't hear it too often. But you will, undoubtedly. I have. I bet you most of you have at some point. Where you hear somebody say that there was some special revelation given to them. They interacted with somebody who was an angel. Or Christ. Or God spoke to them. They heard it. Have you had that before? You ever talked to somebody about that? That's experiential. And what they took that to mean was that that was a direct revelation from God of additional information that's outside of scriptures. They made it personal. Look, you never hear anybody say, you know what, God spoke to me and said some things, and you know, it was a nice reminder. I've never heard that. I've never heard them say, you know, God said I should look up, you know, Ecclesiastes such and such, or Isaiah such and such, or you never hear that. It's always some new information. I remember the one time we were at a uh, Christian car cruise. Now, I, you know, there's some religion in all car cruises as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, we were at this car cruise at a church, and they had a devotion at the end. It was like an uh, outreach event. Right? So people would come to the car cruise, then they would have a, um, a free lunch, and then they would give out some prizes after there was a message, which is the way to do it. Right? You don't do the message and then the prizes, or prizes then the message, because everybody's gone. Anyway, sadly, it was all about this lady whose granddaughter was in the hospital and was on the verge of dying. And the lady went out of the room for a few minutes, and the janitor next door, in the room next door, mopping the floor, says something to her about she's going to be perfectly fine, don't worry about it. And there's this conversation that happens for a few minutes, and he knew things about her, and he knew things about what was going to happen. And then she went back into the room, and her granddaughter had miraculously made a turn and was improving. And she knew at that moment that, that was Jesus Christ that she had just talked to as a janitor. And she went out and talked to somebody, and oh, there wasn't a janitor in here. They said there wasn't a janitor there. So she knew that was Jesus. That's the information that comes out of those. It's this it's new revelation, right? It's information that is not in the scripture. It's additional information. That makes that personal. It's personal. It's not you believe this, not in the scripture, you believe this. Now, this happens to a lot of people based on their even interpretation of the Scripture, right? So something happens, and they say, oh, you know what? This Scripture must mean this, because this is what happened to me. It honestly is not about what happened to you. It's not about what happened to you. Now, there is a danger of this in sharing the Gospel. I've heard many people say this, and look, if you've said this, 
I'm not trying to step on your toes. I'll be honest and say, I don't remember having this conversation with any of you. And you can say, we just talked about this last month. Well, I'm old, okay? So I don't remember any of you ever saying this. There are many times people would say, here's how you share the gospel. You just tell them about what happened to you. Have you heard that before? That's not biblical. There's no place in the New Testament that happens. You do not see Paul telling others, I became saved by doing this. Now, you do see him explaining to the king, here is how, when the king says, hey, aren't you the guy? And he says, well, yeah, but something happened. But then what does he do? Immediately shares the gospel. He doesn't use his experience as a way to get somebody to convert. You don't see Peter getting up at Pentecost and explaining, you know, here's what Jesus told me, and here's what happened to me, and this is all about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. It's about the gospel, not about you. And this is easy to do. Now, so is it bad for you to share what happened to you? It can't be. Why? Paul did it. (laughs) Are you with me on this? But the focus and the thrust of sharing the gospel isn't just telling them what happened to you. Now, you know when that's particularly challenging? You were raised in a Christian home, went to church all your life, got saved at some point, repented, believed, got saved. How does that apply to the person who's never once been to church? How can they possibly relate to that? They can't. How about the fact that they're sinners? That they do things that's wrong? They know that they are. Everyone knows that they are. They all know it. Anyone who says, I don't do anything wrong, you just lied. And you know you lied. Because you do things and you do feel guilt. Where does that come from? Inside. People know they did something wrong. People know they need something. People are worried about where they're going to go when they die. What's going to happen? They're worried about it. And they'll turn to all kinds of crazy stuff to relieve that fear. And you can say that. You can use that. Do you ever think about what happens when you die? You know, Jesus Christ came to free people that are captive to sin. How did he do it? Lead you into a conversation. We have to be careful. It's not about us. It's about Christ. Somebody says, what happened to you? You used to be at the bar every night. You know, we did a lot of rough stuff together. You don't come around no more. What happened? What do you do? You share your testimony. But that's not it. You, you have to explain the gospel. You have to tell the gospel. Right? You can't just end it by saying, you know what? This is what happened to me. This is what's going to happen to you. You don't say that. First of all, you don't know if that's what's going to happen to them. Second, you don't know if it's going to go the same for them. Do you? 
But what you do know is, is that they still need Christ. Preach Christ. So, already said, this is the ultimate heresy because it makes our beliefs based on man's standards, not God's standards. As a result, faith is only an act of faith. Faith is only an act of faith. Now, that's a little confusing sentence. Personalizing our beliefs makes our faith based on our actions, not on God's. That's what we're talking about. See, when you make it all about you, then it makes your faith based on you, not based on God. We must have faith. And we do have faith if we believe on Jesus Christ. Do we not? Have any of you met Christ? Did any of you see him die on the cross? Did any of you been to heaven at the gates and seen what happens when someone's died? Have any of you been to hell? No, none of those things. Everything about what you believe is based on faith. If you believe the Bible is the word of God, it's faith. It's faith. We have to have faith. You sat down in that chair. You had faith in that chair. We have faith about everything. You get up in the morning, you believe you're going to be able to put your feet on the floor. It's not going to, you're not going to fall down to the bottom of the ocean when you step out of your bed. We have faith. What we have to be careful of is that we recognize that our belief on Jesus Christ, the fact that we're Christians, is not based on our faith alone, but based on God and what he did. The faith is a result of that. And how does that faith come in, by the way? Through the working of the what in your heart? Holy Spirit. Your heart was a what kind of material? Stone. Dead. Who quickened it? Made it alive? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. It's God's actions. It's not based on our actions. We must remember that our decisions are not important. It is he who saves that is important. It's a little taste of Arminianism there, right? It's not, well, we made this decision, and that's how, because I made the decision. It's not because you made the decision. You're elect before the foundations of the earth. Were you there for that? Did you ask God, can you put me on the list? No. No. We should strive to avoid making our Christianity about our personal opinions and feelings. We should be striving to do that. Our religion should be based on the scriptures. Our beliefs should be based on the scriptures. That's where we should be looking. All right, second danger, an extreme. Making our beliefs impersonal. <laughs> we swing the pendulum. Making our beliefs impersonal. So in other words, the other extreme that must be avoided is to make our beliefs entirely impersonal, purely intellectual and objective. So this is having the truth but not the faith. It's having facts but not the grace of the Spirit. I believe in what I believe is not Christianity. You see this? In other words, you can intellectually have all the knowledge of the Scripture, but if it's not real in your heart, it's not real. Now this is a major danger. People don't pay attention to it too often. They'll have all the knowledge, all of the information, but they will not draw the line to understand that it's knowledge and information, the Spirit in their heart, and that faith that's in their heart, that is part of the equation. It can't be just based on the knowledge. Then it's impersonal. So you know what happens then? Then there's no grace. 
Why? Well, Scripture says this. That's it. There's no grace. No grace. Look, has everyone in this room always done and said exactly what you wanted them to? No. No. And you're all still here. You're in this room right now together. So that means that at some level, you extended grace. Right? Like, maybe somebody said something that hurt your feelings. But you didn't leave. And as far as I know, you didn't fight. You extended grace. Right? Are you with me on this? That is a reflection of the faith being real and not impersonal. See? The more impersonal it becomes, or you could say analytic, that's another thing you could do, right? You could go analytic. You could say it that way. The more it becomes that, the less grace there is, the less faith there is. It cannot be purely analytical. It can't be stoic. Stoicism is completely no grace. That is this to the extreme, right? Somebody's dead. Well, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Get on with it. Where's the grace in that? There isn't any grace in that. Are you with me? What did Jesus do when he approached the tomb of Lazarus? Shortest verse in the scripture. Jesus wept. Was that stoic? No. Did he know he was going to raise him from the dead? He knew. He knew. Still cried. Faith in Christ is what matters, not faith in my knowledge about Christ. You see the difference there? Faith in Christ is what matters, not faith in my knowledge about Christ. Knowing about someone is not the same as knowing someone. You can know a lot about the Bible and not know Jesus. Okay. All right, so this is so easy to point out now as an example. <laughs> because how many people, it's a large number of the population, are completely obsessed with social media? They are. And they think, because they see all this information about people, that they know them. Do you see what I'm saying? It's the same thing. In other words, they know a lot about that person, but they don't know that person. What they really know is what that person wants them to know. That's what they know. And it's not very often that we publish our, we, we actually launder our dirty, bad, sinful nature in front of everybody else, right? It's usually going to be the things that we're proud of or happy for or that we like. It's not going to be enough for us to know about that person. Do people sin? Everyone does. But most of the time, you don't see those sins listed on social media, do you? You don't really know them. You know about them. But that's just a simple sliver of the fact that the Scripture tells us a lot about Christ. But that's not the same as really knowing Him. You know about Him, but you don't know Him. Have you ever come across people like this? I mean, it happens, right? Someone who says, I just got saved. I just found new life in Christ. 
but pastor, you've been the pastor here for 20 years. What happened? He knew about Christ, but he didn't know Christ. Do you see what I mean? He knew about him, didn't know him. Loving creeds and confessions instead of Jesus is a danger. Look, the focus is not the 1689. This explains what the scriptures teach. The focus is Christ. The focus is our relationship with God. It's not the creed. Like, you shouldn't be like, you know, I'm all about the creed. My, you know, my license plate, my life, all I do is talk about the creed, study the creed, I'm in the creed, I'm in the creed. No, you're focused on the wrong thing. That goes along with it. And this is true of everything. Look, you can say, you know, I can't get enough of John MacArthur. John MacArthur, he's good. He's great. He's great. I, like, I really like listening to John MacArthur. He's really good. But if your whole focus is John MacArthur, you're missing the point. John MacArthur is trying to point you to Christ. We don't focus on him. Neither do we want to focus on any other historical figures, whether it's Calvin or whether it's whoever. It doesn't matter. They're not the focus. Do they write some good things that we can quote? Yeah. Of course. We do it. I'll quote them all the time. Right? We don't quote everything. Why? Well, he did some stuff that wasn't good. Just like the rest of us. But he's not the focus. Like, this isn't the first church of Calvin. Are you with me on this? We don't, we're, not, we're not focusing on him. We're going to focus on Christ. That's who we look to. And by the way, we're not focusing, we're not worshiping Antioch. <laughs> we're not worshiping Antioch because our name is Antioch. In fact, how many messages have you heard about Antioch? Not too many. I do mention it every once in a while just because it's kind of cool. But <laughs> beyond that, that's not our focus. We must remember, faith is not just believing. It's committing to and entrusting in Christ. Without that relationship, faith is just knowledge and not real. Now this is the trickiness of faith, right? It can become very personal, where it's all about what you experience. And that's, that personal experience becomes essentially your Christ. Oh, he's still in there. But it's all about what happened with you. Or then the other side is, it's all about the information and the knowledge. You know, this is where the Gnostics went. It's on this side. Right? It's all about the knowledge, not about the relationship. The faith has to be a blending. It should encompass both. You should have this desire to know more, and you should have this desire and this thankfulness that you have a personal relationship, but the focus in the end has to be to Christ. It can't be one or the other. These are the dangers of the extremes. Okay. Well, since we're already out of time, it worked out perfectly. So next time we will begin with chapter 1 of the confession, which is of the scripture. So here's your homework. If you need to write it down, write it down. But here's your homework. Next week, you need to read the preface and paragraph 1. The preface and paragraph 1. We will go through the uh, preface. We'll read through it. We'll talk about it just briefly, not very long. And then we will get directly into... Chapter 1, paragraph 1. Now, if you want to do extra credit, uh, you could read paragraph 2, because we could potentially cross over to that, but I doubt it. I think it'll be just paragraph 1. Now, don't forget that you need to read the Scripture references, right? So as you read through paragraph 1, you'll see references to that, Scripture references. Read those references, okay? Read Because I will not be reading them in class, so read the references. All right, let's close in a word of prayer.